0: Hi and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, uh, in recent weeks we've been through shoes, we've been through jeans, we've been through various ready-made stuff. Today we're going a bit deeper back into the roots and uh, looking at um, fabrics. My guest today is uh, Chris. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Chris and uh, I am the
1: owner of and creative director of a company called Hewitt Denim
0: Mills, formerly known as Hewitt Heritage Fabrics. And uh, Hewitt Heritage Fabrics is something I've been sort of hearing about in the underground of the British garment industry for quite a while now. Can you tell me a bit about what is the Hewitt name about? Um,
1: So I started out... In two thousand and eight, um, with an idea to make a pair of jeans, and uh, and that that idea was um, it was a great idea. We wanted to make a pair of sustainable jeans, and it was me and another and a friend of mine who had briefly worked in the fashion industry, uh, and for that reason, I we thought that he would be the resident expert on making a pair of jeans. Uh, it, it turned out that he wasn't, neither of us were. We had no idea. We had a, an idea of what we liked to buy in a shop, but we had no idea about what it went, what you had to do to make a pair of jeans, even to the point of like, we didn't even kind of remember thinking we had this one brainstorming session. We were like, where does denim come from? and uh i would would, like phone up these brands like i would try and get someone on the phone or i'd send an email and it was like like tumbleweed like you know this desert town that there would be never be any reply or someone would write back saying i'm sorry i can't help you or you get someone on the phone and they say i'm sorry what was your question and uh And I was like, wow, you know, this is, I'm just, I'm just asking you. And it was these people, for some reason, had this closely, this wanted to have a close, their their denim source was a very closely guarded secret. And it was at that point um, that I thought to myself, well, what about Levi's? And so I typed in, where does Levi's get their denim? And uh, Cone Mills came up. And uh, that then started me on a kind of a journey with Cone Mills which uh to cut a long story short it it I parted company with my business partner, and uh we i then pursued this i this idea that would started with a pair of jeans, but by this time I stopped and after hemorrhaging about a hundred thousand pounds, it had expanded to this um uh like seventy two piece collection. Uh, I was having shirts made in Turkey. I was getting um, uh, cardigans and jumpers knitted in Peru from some kind of left-wing co- cooperative, and I had—I was even going to get hats knitted by these um, this cooperative in between uh, uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, and Asheville, North Carolina. Um, these Peruvian refugees that they'd opened up this this knitting factory to knit um, sock hand puppets and and hats for me Uh, and it became so absurd and so unmanageable and uh, I remember getting all of my uh, my samples back and they were all terrible I mean like it was because I had no idea what I was doing (laughs) I was like, oh my God, like what do I do? And and I, I literally had no idea what to do at that point. And I, I phoned my business advisor and I said, What do I do? And he said, You just have to stop. He said, Because you you know, you're gonna you're gonna have no money left. And so that's what I did and and that was around two thousand and twelve. And in I had this moment where I like I had no direction whatsoever and I remembered a conversation that i had had with my former business partner way back when we started. And it was, well, why can't we make the denim here? Uh, to which he said, uh, well, don't be crazy. Like, why would anybody weave denim in the UK? Like, that's a mad idea. And then that was when I looked into weaving in the UK and how our weaving industry had, um, you know, really, you know, was, had decreased over the years and uh, from 85% of the world's fabric woven in the north of England in the late 19th and earliest 20th century to to something like 2 or 3%. And not even that, I don't think. And that was when I thought, well, there seems to be a gap in the market. And uh, I decided to, I would embark on this um journey of trying to weave denim in the u k and uh it, from so from two thousand and twelve to about it took me about until two thousand and fourteen to find a weaver that would do it uh and um and then finding the iron and all those things but but to, to get to hewitt heritage fabrics i mean i i started out with a lot of names um and i i wanted to Um, and also initially at one point it started, I wanted to facilitate, I still wanted to make clothes and I had another business advisor and he was saying, don't make clothes. Making clothes is a nightmare. He said, and you have, you, he said, it's not a good business model. No one will ever invest in a clothing brand. He was said to me, like, because he said, you, you're not, You're not like some genius designer from Central St. Martin's. No one's going to invest in this clothing brand, but someone might invest in a fabric brand because that's the proposition. It's just fabric. You're making a fabric that no one else makes in the UK. So it's a good business model. But I really, really wanted... I still, to this day, I fantasize about having my own denim label. But I mean, I, I was really like, I really kind of dedicated to this idea of making my own label by weaving my own fabric and um and then I eventually I just gave up on that and and decided that I would um put my name to this fabric this heritage fabric that I was able to Um, that my mill that I, uh, my initial mill that I partnered with had made in the past. Funny enough, they had made it for me in the past really early on. And I got someone else to make, I I approached another mill and I said, can you make denim? And they said, sure. Yeah, no problem. And so they made me this piece of fabric and it arrived and I got it. And I was like, this is fantastic. And then they said to me, you know what? We're not going to do that anymore. And I said, what do you mean by that? And they said, well, it's just, it's just really hard to get the indigo yarn and it's so expensive. And I said, wow, okay, well, could you give me the name of the mill that did it? And they were like, no, why would we do that? Why would we give you that information? And I'm like, I don't know, just to be helpful. And they're like, no, but we might want to make it in the future and then you'll be our direct competition.
0: Oh, that's some serious gatekeeping there.
1: <laughs> so but the weaving industry is like that.
0: So... <clears throat> Listening to your sort of early forays into the sort of clothing making, that I was just sitting here thinking, that's just what I would have done. Full steam ahead, <laughs> doing everything possible. But I'm curious, uh, obviously, back in 2008, when you got this idea that you wanted to make your own jeans, you must have had some sort of background, because I think most people find it hard enough to just go out and buy a pair, let alone... Have the crazy idea of wanting to create basically a production and denim brand. So, where did you come from in 2008?
1: Um, I had been, uh, like I, I've collected vintage clothing my whole life. Um, I started out when I was 13. Um, I joined, I was living, I grew up in Toronto and, uh, I joined my first subculture, which was being a mod and uh and immediately, like it was all about music, clothes, and girls right and it was cyclical, and those were the three those were the three most important things in my life, and I don't know whether it was whether it started with music or girls or whether it started with clothes, it was but that was it and uh and from that i i uh developed an obsession or detail. Um, and, uh, and that has never gone away. And uh, it's, uh, some people might refer to it as an addiction. I think it's just a nice obsession. But, but it's, uh, I, I really got into clothes. And uh, I really got into, you know, the minutia of like, how stuff is stitched, you know, where the zipper comes from, the history of things, and so on and so forth. Because, I wanted to be know everything about this thing that, that really excited me. The the same was, you know, with music and, and so on and so forth and any, everything in life. And, and I, in, um, up until 2002, I had been a chef. And, uh, that was like my, my mom said, that's your God given talent is that you knew for some reason you just knew how to cook. And, uh, and that had been what I wanted to do literally for my whole life. I mean, I was just, I loved that uh, alongside this, you know, what had become a hobby, uh, which was buying vintage clothing. And uh, I then um, got out of cooking and decided I uh, uh, to go to art school uh, because I quite liked that as well. I found that, you know, I always liked something creative. And then at some point I, I, While I was going to art school, I started selling vintage clothing, um, and kind of really getting into it in a way of uh, as a as a business. And then midway to, I was about to get onto a a fine art course, and then thought to myself, I don't want to be poor, uh, so I'm not going to be an artist. I'm going to be a vintage clothing dealer. (laughs) I so I did that, and then. I started to, um, I remember in 95, I remember I was working at a cafe uh, in, it was like 98, I think it was when Urban Outfitters opened. And uh, I'm pretty sure it was 98. Well, whenever the Urban Outfitters opened on Kensington High Street and they had, had, when they first opened, they had an amazing menswear collection. They, They just really unique stuff that, no one had ever really seen here before, and one of the things they had was denim jeans, and uh, and I think the only other place that sold them was that I later found out was there was a there was a shop on Upper Street called Ivy, and they um, they used to sell like uh, denim Levi's Biggie uh, and um, uh, Edwin, and I remember get you know. What always want? I remember looking at the price tag. They were two hundred and eighty pounds. These jeans. <laughs> I mean, in
0: nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, I mean, like they were. so it's like two
1: grand now. <laughs> I mean,
0: they were so
1: expensive. <laughs> they were like what? Um And uh they were. But I remember thinking, God, they were really great denim. And I really like. I had worn Salvage Levi's when I was growing up. Like one of the my uh, my best. Levi's, I'll just segue to one of my best Levi's stories. When I was 16 years old, I really wanted a white Levi's red tab biggie jean jacket with silver buttons. And so my mom uh, phoned up this place in Toronto, which was the only place that you could get a white Levi's jean jacket. And, and it was, it was this, this kind of cream color, it was a very nice, really, really heavy denim. And my mom, so they said, Oh, you should phone Levi's Canada. So my mom phones Levi's Canada and they say, you should phone the head office in San Francisco. So then she phones his head office in San Francisco. She gets on the phone with this woman and this woman says, "Um, uh, leave it with me. Uh, I'll get back to you in a couple of weeks. So she calls this woman, calls my mother back in a couple of weeks and says, I found some white stay pressed uh, at Levi's Japan. Tell your son to go into Mark's work warehouse on Saturday. We've booked an appointment. They'll take his measurements and they'll send them back to us and we'll make him a jean jacket for his 16th birthday. Wow. Now, I don't have that jacket anymore, which I, you know, I deeply regret. But, but I was like, that was, for me, like Levi's was like enshrined in gold from that moment on in my life. Um, but I, I remember like, and it was all done on the telephone it's fantastic um but so i you know the same thing that uh, i saw these denim jeans and then i remember years later uh, i was in an oxfam and i saw a pair of denim jeans and i i i remember i bought them and i wore them to death and i really started to get into i became this that another obsession was born japanese salvaged denim and then i became just really obsessed with that and it was in that kind of obsession that i ran into this guy this friend of mine introduced me to this guy matt who would become my business partner in this very early stages of this thing but we really i think it was just this idea of being able to make a pair of jeans like that was that we had both he wore apc uh and i wore um anything japanese And we just both had, we, that was our connection with one another, this love of selvage denim. Um, like I'm not even a roller, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, you know, averse to a roller, but I don't, I don't roll it not because I don't want to. I just, I buy selvage because I love the feel of the cloth. I love the way that it's woven and, and, and it's durability and it's, uh, and it's in a sense, sustainability. I I can't really, I'm not going to really, I can't, attach myself to that because I'll get in trouble. People will tell me that it's not sustainable salvage denim because it isn't but like
0: <laughs> But Are those being a little curious right now about what a roller might be. Could you explain that?
1: Or like rolling your cuff. So when you when you expose when a person spo- exposes their um their salvage. Uh like that some people that little
0: flash of colour.
1: That little flash of colour. Yeah I've never I've never been uh, sometimes I do it, but but not really. But it's just it was. I just had this 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 kind of. And then when when we included into it this kind of the romantic story of the Draper Loom and the, you know, cone mills, and I and I, I went ended up going to um. To White Oak, um, and uh, that was that was an interesting
0: trip. <laughs> Would you like to tell tell me a bit about that?
1: Well, I, we had made this pair of jeans. So we had had started this conversation with Co-Mills and, and went through a guy called Ralph Tharp. And Ralph Tharp is knows more about denim than all of the people I know combined. Um, and if you are looking for a good for a good uh, um, guest on on your show on your podcast, I will connect you to Ralph, and he will gladly come along and talk to you. Like I mean, he is the Gandalf of denim. I I mean, like he is he is it, right? Wise oh,
0: old magician.
1: I mean, he he was the technical head of uh, Co. Mills at White Oak, of uh, all of cone Mills. He worked out of White Oak. Um, he worked there pretty much his whole life. He was there when they turned off the looms in '82, the salvage looms in '82, and he was there when they turned them on again um, when LVC became. Uh, you know, a big thing, and he, uh, so I had started this conversation with him about them uh, replacing the indigo that they were using at the time with uh, star GOTS, or Global Organic Textile Standard Version 4 approved pre-reduced indigo, uh, so that we could hopefully make this GOTS certified pair of Salvaged denim jeans that I think in 2008, I don't think anybody was doing that. That would um, be a, a
0: more environmentally friendly version yeah. of the indigo dye.
1: Yeah, it's a much more environmentally friendly. Like most indigo dye is chemical. All pretty much all of the indigo dye used through the world is chemical, uh, petrochemical product. And um, so this was a cleaner version. And uh, so we were entered into this conversation, and we we got some fabric off of them and we made a sample and uh they then invited me to come to new york Uh, i was going to new york anyways to a trade show and then i arranged to go and see the head of sales at their head office on broadway and uh we were we were there we had this great interview it's great to be there it's like fantastic really you know great time and we had this great conversation and then when i was leaving the head of sales said, do you want to have a coffee, another coffee? Uh, you know, maybe across the street. <laughs> I think it was at the only Pret-a-Manché in New York at the time. So he goes, would you like to have it across the street? And I go, sure. Uh, and I go, okay, yeah, like, all right. yeah, You know, I, I can have a little bit of coffee. So goes, we go downstairs, he gets across the street, goes in, he gets me a coffee, he comes back i And we're standing on the street corner. And he said, yeah, you know that, uh, that thing with uh, the organic stuff? He said, "Yeah, we're not going to pursue that with you." I was like, it's like one of those moments where you go, "What? Yeah, what?" Like, "Do you think maybe you could have told me that before I flew all the way to New York and put my ticket to white oak and uh all of spent all of this money?" And uh that so that was that. And then I flew down to Greensboro and you know meeting Ralph kind of made it okay, made it somewhat okay made it somewhat okay that meeting Ralph and uh but that was when I pivoted at that moment uh you know it was great being at White Oak it's an amazing experience this whole kind of seeing these old Draper looms and um you know the link between Draper looms and and Keithley in Yorkshire is um Northrop uh, Mr. Northrop, who invented the, I think it's the stop shuttle, and then went took his invention to America, and met up with the Draper brothers, and that's the power loom story. Um, so it's you know the denim as we know it. Like I'm sure someone would have invented what Mr. Northrop invented, but he was from Keith Lee in Yorkshire, so there is a def, you know, definitive link between us and denim as we know it, you know, the denim story because Cone and White Oak, you know, was the denim center of the universe. You know, it made all of the, all of the denim for Levi's from 1922 to 82 and uh, all the salvage that is. And uh, it, uh, you know, so we, without Keith Lee, it, the story might be different. Uh, so that was a great experience to be there. Uh, but but it was the end of my journey with Cone Mills. Uh, and then I pivoted towards uh, Japan.
0: And Cone White Oak is gone now, isn't it?
1: It is gone, yeah. I mean, the, the property was worth more than the business coming out of that particular uh, site.
0: Some might say it was their reluctance to get on board with the more environmentally friendly production.
1: Quite possibly. You know, like it, it, was, an, it was an old mill. So, you know, to, to be, you know, mills cost a lot of money to build. And, uh, you know, if you want to be environmentally circular, you have to install new systems. Um, but also I think it, you know, it was, Cone was taken over by an asset stripping company, um, and it was, um, it, it had changed hands a few times. And it's the owners that closed it down needed to 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 streamline it. They needed to make it more uh, profitable. And as it was at that moment, it just, things like white oak that wasn't uh, kind of uh, have the ability to you know also, why out there's a lot of when you're paying union workers in the United States, they make a lot of money. You can pay Mexicans and the Chinese less money, mm. so if you want to make more money as a company as a multinational company, you want to be in an environment where your labor costs are lower,
0: which is why you wanted to start up in England,
1: yeah, like. Uh, <laughs> I, I, again you know like i i'm an ideas person, so I come up with these ideas that seem like on paper they seem really good they they have um they have a lot of uh make really good instagram stories or they they are they are people like the romantic uh notion of them uh and you know it's like a story and it appeals to people's senses and, but when it comes to you know being commercially viable it 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 can be the romance is of of no use uh and so the only way to to make a denim business a denim business not the actual you know the brands and the jeans or look people you know that's something different but to make a weaving fabric weaving business for with denim profitable is to either sell it for a huge amount of money but then you have no customers, um, or you have to build a mill, um, and that those are the really your only two options. And then you have to it, by building the mill, you have to see how long, you know. Then you have to get commitment from brands to buy your fabric or your product, and then you have to you know project do the projections on you know, is when are we going to be able to pay off our initial investment? And so all of those things, one has to factor in. Uh, but, you know, my original idea was not that. My original idea was, you know what, I'm going to waste some denim on some old looms and lots of people are going to buy it. Uh, because there was... Sounds good. Yeah. And, and because all of the, you know, lots of people at that point were talking about made in the UK. Uh and and that was everybody wanted to do that, but unfortunately made in the UK is only possible if you know, we can one can can get near the prices that it's gonna cost somewhere else, close at home, i.e., you know, you don't necessarily have to compete with China and Turkey, but you certainly have to compete with Portugal, uh, Romania, Slovakia and italy if you can't compete with their prices then then there's you can't you can't convince someone to we to to produce something in the uk beyond that that's you know at volume and without volume you can't create jobs uh and without volume you can't create interest for investment. Mm because it just takes too long for anybody to get their money back
0: <laughs> so after the disappointment at uh, cone you said you looked to japan again what how did that go
1: um yeah it was pretty good like i i did um i got to know some people at karaoke mill um a really nice guy at karaoke mill um called shun Kuroki. he's like the vp and it's you know, yeah, I went I started going to Premier Vision pretty much every season and I would start talking to these Japanese denim mills, but again I, I was uh quite um, keen on it being uh kind of natural and organic and there weren't a lot of people doing that at that time. I'd spoken to a a company called Collect who uh, have their own denim label. Uh, I think it's they did Pure Blue Japan. Um, and so, you know, that. and people were really into Japanese denim. I mean, they really, and they make great denim. Like the Japanese are the ones that make really heavy denim um, because the Americans, you know, the original comb Mills uh, denim was about 11 and a half ounces. So, you know, all of those much earlier pairs of kind of vintage jeans were never like, I don't think Cone ever went above 12.5 and that's after samphorizing.
0: Right. pretty
1: light. Yeah. Like, I mean, the majority of even the, the denim that was made in the UK at Smith and nephew uh, up until 94, because um, they made denim for Levi's in the UK. Like that was also really low weight. Like, 11 and a half 12 and a half ounces maybe um but it was the japanese i think it was edwin who was the first one to to produce heavier del heavier denim um above 12 and a half ounces um i just got someone just (laughs) sent me an order for 24 ounce of selvage and i was like i don't even know how to weave that i actually asked ralph i said ralph how do i how do I weave 24 ounce salvage? He said, I don't know. I said, I've never made it before. But um, so we I pivoted and and I ended up uh there was a really good company, a mill in um that I found, or or fabric company that I found called Showatex, And they made this really amazing kind of 14 and 16 ounce um organic selvage, which I really liked. And then I also liked this a mill called Neon Mempu, uh, and they made, they were doing a natural indigo, um, uh, natural indigo organic cotton selvage, which was an amazing product. It was like 15 ounces. Uh, and I did a little bit of sampling in that, but again, like, as I said earlier, when someone said, don't do a clothing label, just don't do it. It's so expensive and Part of that so I, I remember I was I was in Paris um, at this the agent of Neo Memphu's a, a showroom and I said, So what what what's the best you can do for me on this organic cotton natural indigo selvage? And she was like thirty dollars a meter. And I said, And how much do I need to order? And she said, three thousand meters. Now that's
0: a few pairs of jeans.
1: That's a few pairs of jeans. You know, it's like fifteen hundred pairs of jeans. Uh but it's it's the thing of like when you and and she said it it's it's fifty percent up front and fifty percent after thirty days. And and I'm like, you know, that's a lot of money.
0: It's still a long way off the jeans being on the shop shelf, isn't it? <clears throat>
1: yeah, I mean that's a lot of money for fabric. Then you gotta ship it all the way from, from uh, Japan to the United Kingdom, and then then there was the next problem was that no one in the UK could make a pair of jeans to a Japanese standard. So, which is, you know, I would say Japanese standard is a, a chain stitch to the end of the waistband and a chain stitched hem. Now people, and when I started out, no one, like no one was really making jeans, and no one was chain stitching. Uh, like that just wasn't. Um, like, this is pre-Black Horse Lane. Uh, this is pre-Cookson and Clegg. Like, Cookson and Clegg were around, but I think, you know, I'm pretty certain I was the one that put the idea of making jeans in their, into their head because I'd gone to them to ask them to make me a pair of jeans. But I remember they didn't have any chain stitching uh, uh, machines. And, and again, I, I've, I've, I've encountered this before is that you'd say, well, this is the machine. I can get you this machine for this amount of money. If I go halves with you on it, will you put it in? And they go, oh, you know, I, I, I'm not, yeah, maybe. Okay, so I'll do that again. So if I know where I can get this machine, I will pay for the machine. In total, you can use it for other clients. Will you put it in? Oh, you know, I'm, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> and, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so that's what it was like back then, so then it was again this same, and I spent years i mean literally years, you know, and then I gave up on Japanese denim because it was just you know the outlay was just too enormous uh and i st- and that's when I started along this road of trying to make fabric in the u k and uh through that, I then got um this. I spent years, literally years, making samples of pairs of jeans, going, Yeah, but can can I just buy this machine and it'll just be so much easier and they just wouldn't do it. And then people saying, No, we don't want to make for you. Or and not because they didn't like me, they just didn't want to make. Um they didn't want to make and I think partly they were so because the industry had retracted so much here. They were, they were happy, you know, they were safe in their orders that they had and they didn't really want to mess with that. They didn't want to take someone else on board. They didn't want to buy machines for someone else. They didn't want to have that burden um, associated with working with a brand new label. Um, and, and so eventually I just got to that point where I just said, yeah, you know what? I don't want, I can't do it anymore. It's just uh It's too much. It's too much hard work. Um, And so some people come from me up, but then I I got into this thing again where people would say to me, I really want to buy your fabric, but I also want to make clothes in the UK and I can't afford to do both. Uh, And so that's where I think the challenges for brands or smaller brands that are maybe direct to market brands uh, that want to produce a made in the UK product, it's difficult for them because UK fabric is like sometimes 50% more expensive um, than it is, than it is elsewhere. Uh And our, our sewing here is way more expensive. Like, uh, at the top end of gene making in the UK, uh you know it's like four times, four or five times more expensive than it is in Italy. Uh, so it's, you know, that that's, you know, a challenge. Here. But then, you know, there are reasons for that. You know, we our minimum wage, we have a minimum wage here in the garment industry, and I could be wrong. Might get an email from the Italian government saying, <laughs> we, we have, "What are you talking about? We have a minimum wage." But I'm I I heard that that you know that that that, that varied in the garment industry in Italy and in other countries. That there's, but here the garment industry, because there are so few sewers, that they're, they're paid a lot more. Except maybe in in Leicester, but 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 places outside of that. And so the, those are the challenges, right? And uh, definitely the challenges for me um, in. You know, one of the challenges that we've had consistently is that then now is that I'm doing all of my finishing in, in Italy because I can't find anybody here that could consistently finish denim um, you know but it, I tried and tried again I used every single last finisher in the UK and not one of them was able to do what the Italians can do you know like it they you know it like the back of their hands
0: the finishing is the process where you take the the woven fabric and make it ready to use
1: yeah cuz loom state denim will shrink at 40 degrees it'll shrink about 15% in the in the length and up to about 9 to 10% in the width um you know and, and also it will twist like so you know you when you're using ring spun yarns when you wash it like on that vintage denim you get that selvage begins to twist to the front um you see on a lot of old jeans uh which a lot of people like but a lot of people don't um so you have to skew your fabric it's a process which is a weft straightening so that it doesn't twist um and so there's lots of normally the process of to, to achieve raw denim would be you would singe it. You singe off all the front and back to get all the hair off. And then you would uh, apply some moisture and then put it on a stenter and stretch it. So say you wove to a loom state of 90 centimeters, you would stretch it to 85 centimeters. And then you would apply probably a, maybe a wetting agent and then some moisture again and then you would run it through the samphorizer and that will set the shrinkage at between, you know, really about three to 5%. So at 30 or 40 degrees, it will shrink in the warp and width, length and width, warp and weft uh, by about three to 5%. And will continue shrinking. That's why none of my Japanese genes Fit me anymore because they, even though I've washed them inside out in cold water on on like a a sports wash for seven and a half minutes or something just to get some freshness back in them they all you know I'm like um, they don't fit me anymore. I've so, done that in
0: recent times as well, but I hadn't come up with such an ingenious uh, explanation of it.
1: <laughs> so, and then the other way is that that you will wash you pre-wash denim. So you pre-wash it, and you, uh, and then you add a resin back into it to give it body. So um, most rinsed denim has been, uh, has had some resin put back into it to add to give it to give it a little bit of weight and to also give it some handle back. Because even when you wash it cold water in cold water, you you wash out a a, a fair bit of the size. So size is what they add to the warp yarn to stop it from breaking when the shuttle goes across it. It's normally just cornstarch or potato starch. And that, depending on... So Cone Mills in the beginning used to add a lot of starch, used to add a lot of size to bring the weight up and the rigidity up of the denim.
0: You know, I've always wondered when the denim bros go on about soaking their new jeans to release the starch well what the hell is this starch they're talking about but then you've explained it so denim bros you're right yeah Well, yeah and you can restarch too you just just throw get some uh
1: nick wax and throw it into your or get some uh restarching and just throw it into your uh washing machine and add some rigidity back into
0: your jeans now getting back to your process You'd been turned down in America, Japan was too expensive, you were back in the UK, you sampled with one mill who wouldn't tell you where it was woven. At this point you naturally gave up.
1: So yeah, I yeah, I, I'm not a good giver upper. So uh I was like, Well and I remember <laughs> that's it took me like a year and a half to find that mill that wove that denim. And uh I started with, um, you know, putting about as much time apart as possible. And I I remember there's this book called McRae's Blue Book. And it's an old industry book for uh, dyers and weavers and textile industry people. And I started phoning all of these numbers. And most of them, like a lot of them, were old numbers. So, you know, I scratched those out. And then I just literally like three days a week or something. I'd phone like ten numbers on my phone, and I phone and I phone. And people would say, No, no, we don't have any or or numbers would be just be out of order. And I remember phoning this guy who's since passed called Francis Moore. And he's in um Yorkshire and he um he was really interesting to talk to. And uh, I remember saying, and I remember him saying, I think I could do that for you. And and I know that he, because I know that he had a couple of Northrop looms. And um, I remember saying, well, that's really great. And he was a really interesting guy. He's still, his son now runs the business, and they're like the his specialist weavers, and really great guys. And then the the little time that I spent speaking to Pete's dad, Francis, was, you know, he was an amazing man, really. You know, you could really you could really tell that he was just this really genuine um, uh, man, person with great integrity. And uh, but then Francis said, you know what, I just don't think it's for me. You should call this guy called Lance Mitchell. And uh, I, I was like, okay, so I phoned Lance and. And that is the, on my website, there's some images of um, a mill called County Brook Mill, where I uh, wove all of our salvage from, uh, we st- I started working with them. I remember I phoned up Ralph, I, was, I pulled my car, or not Ralph, I phoned up Lance, I pulled my car over because I'd sent him an email and he said, I think he had said, Sam, why don't you give me a call? And I pulled my car, I was driving and, and I I pulled, uh, I, I had gotten like a, I, I don't know why I stopped. And I looked at my email and there was email from him. So I'm sitting in the car and I, I, uh, I phoned him up and I said, well, oh, Hey, hi, Lance. It's uh, Chris calling. Uh, I it's the guy that emailed you about the denim and uh, Francis Moore told me to call you. And he was like, uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, uh, and he said, well, uh, I said, do you think you could possibly weave? Uh, I, I said, I I think you wove a piece for me. John Spencer Textiles and gone and uh, wove. And he said, yeah, I think I, I remember that. And he said, and I said, uh, would it be possible for you to weave for me? And he said, yeah, that, that could be possible. Yeah, OK. And I said, well, that's great. Thanks so much. And he said, OK, well, have a great day. <laughs> <Just hung up. laughs> And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Thanks. And then I, for a little while there, I just would email him and then he would never return my emails. And then I realized that, that you know, he'll probably, if he hears this, he'll, he'll <laughs> phone me, me up and give me a hard time. But he said, uh, um, he said, uh, I realized that, uh, you know, I should just, and that's one thing I've learned about, you know, the weaving industry. The textile industry here is email is great, but the phone really makes a difference. Uh, And these guys, a lot of these people are really old school and they like to have a conversation on the phone. And even better, they like you to come up and have a cup of tea with them across the table. Um, And so I eventually I said, I think it was a month or two. And I said, I got this weaving pattern and I found, oh, no, that's what happened. So I spoke to them and then I had to find the yarn. Uh, I had to find this indigo yarn, and and that I didn't, I had no idea where where I would get that from, and uh, I that took another year. And periodically through that year, I would phone Lance and say I'm still gonna do it, and he's like, yeah, no no problem, whatever whenever, whenever <laughs> you're ready. And uh, and then after a year, I remember I I'd emailed some guy in Malaysia, who was working for. He was British and he was, he had like a dye company in Malaysia. And I said, can you do indigo dye? And he said, no, but I, oh no. He was supplying got version four approved indigo dye to other people. And he said, "Um, phone this person. They're expecting your telephone call. So I phoned this person in Hong Kong and they said, yeah, what can we do for you? And that was that they became my yarn supplier um, for a little while for the first weaves that I did. And um, I then phoned up Lance and I said, I found a yarn supplier. And he said, I said, what do I need? How much yarn do I need to make like 500 meters of fabric? And that's when he put me in touch with David, who's the mill manager at uh, County Brook, which is their, uh, their kind of industrial or their company name is mitchell Interflex, and they've been weaving on that site cotton on that site since 1907 same family um and it's an amazing mill uh, uh that they have there and uh i then got the yarn in and we wove out the warp and uh i actually just um donated about 40 meters of the last of my of that original warp to um a denim course competition at Central St. Martin's. I've saved a meter. It has a lovely color. Um, but that I got the yarn and then we started weaving. And uh and and in that time I, I, I've changed from, from China, I went to Turkey, and then I changed from Turkey and now I'll get my yarn in Italy. Um, but I just kept on going. And uh it was but I, I remember Lance with, just for years, he was just so, he was just like, yeah, no problem, we'll do it. And then when I went, and, uh, and eventually when I went up there to see them um, that first time, like it was a really amazing experience because it's like so different than Cone Mills was. Like Cone Mills was this massive operation running 24 hours a day with these, I think they had about 20 Draper looms still on the old floor, this, this almost like this sprung wooden floor. And then over on that side, they had like 200 air jet looms just whirring, constantly going all the time. And then you went into uh, County Brook Mill, and it's just such a much smaller operation. And it's also in, in a really old mill from from the, I think, the ninety the early nineteenth century when it was originally built um and we went in and we 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 sat around the board in the boardroom and they brought in a cup of tea and some biscuits and we had a conversation and that was the beginning of our relationship with one another and and you know it's been a great and you know, one thing about that you you have is that when you you form these relationships, regardless of like whether. Your idea is necessarily successful, or um, you know, my, they. I've known them all that time. You know, they've been an active part of my life all that time. I spent a lot of time up at that mill. Is that you develop these really good relationships uh, with people, um, and uh, you know, if I, if it all went. You know, belly up, you know, you would at least still have these really great relationships with people. Um, that, uh, so yeah, I, I really, you know, I appreciate that. Uh, and I also appreciate the fact that, you know, out of a lot of people, Mitchell Interflex, Lance, and his brother Adrian, um, have, uh, you know, really been, um, like, I could not have done, I would have stopped a long time ago, uh, had it not been for them. Um, and, uh, yeah.
0: But they were these rare people in the industry who were actually willing to try something different.
1: Yeah. Like, uh, they were just willing to, to take a punt, really. Um, that they, You know, within reason. I mean, like there's not, you know, no one. They're they're willing to take a punt on existing machinery. Uh, You know, when you get when you start to talk about new machinery, and I also understand now, you know, when people are reluctant to, even if you're saying, look, here's a, here's like, I'll buy two limbs, and we can put them in. They're like, well, where am I going to put them? Who's going to work on them? Uh, And all of those things. So it is, uh, I understand why they don't want to do that. Because it's, because they're the ones that are going to have to take care of them. They're the ones that are going to have to operate them. And so on and so forth. And unless you're, you know, going to joint venture with someone or you're you're starting a new business with someone, um, they're reluctant to, well, they just won't do it. Because it's not, it doesn't it's not viable for them uh, and hence why where you know currently I am is that you know I have this you know I have the supply chain and I have the ability to produce a product um, but really does that constitute a business um, or a viable one and uh and I'm not In its current model, probably not. It's a great idea. It's if we were just doing it as a, you know, it works if you were doing it and you had a little sewing factory that was making your own jeans, right? And you were using this. If I had a little sewing factory that was, or someone would say, came to me and said, do you want to start a clothing label? a a denim label like if someone came to me today and said do you want to start a denim label i can back you on a denim label and we can make this denim label and we'll make it will everything be woven in the uk and uh you know finished in italy and then come back and we're going to sew it all in the uk we can we can i have a great shipping partner that's committed to net zero and all of those things then that's you know a product that you can sell direct to market like them and probably have make a really good successful business but as a component part in someone else's business it's not uh you know i used to, i would have been like this would be such a tragedy to me like eight years ago i would be like ah. but you know, like oh my god this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me um but you know, it's now it's just, just reality, right? Reality sets in and you get realistic and you, you see that where your, um, kind of the boundaries are and you, you can't push through them. Uh, and, you know, and in that, you know, I would, you know, there's a part of me that's really like to push on and, and tell you about what's coming in the future. But all I can say is that there is something else coming in the future. You know, another model that we hope will. um Yeah, it's just a completely different model, but it has everything to do with denim. It has everything to do with sustainability and it has everything to do with producing products in the United Kingdom from. Um, you know, from fibre that is made, grown and made here and spun here, uh, and and trying to produce a, a a 100% British pair of jeans that maybe you can buy at a grade in the back garden on your compost heap.
0: Well, that would be would be good. Um, I'm curious the first 500 meters they made for you was that taken up and used by small british brands who were proud to be using british denim uh,
1: no we, we like one of the things that we sold that first lot of fabric to um, jason denim denim the jean maker for his 10th anniversary collection all right like, the dutch guy yeah Well, he's actually british but he he, he he's his
0: his his He's from the North. I've <laughs> he, uh, always great... thought he was Dutch because hes you see it so much in Amsterdam. But
1: You know, I mean, a uh, great place to set up a business in Amsterdam because you get a good tax break if you set up there. Oh. But uh, uh, I'm not saying that that's the reason he went there. But, uh, he, um, yeah, Jason Denham, he's a great guy. Like I had, I had seen him. I was selling uh, vintage clothing at Spitalfields Market and I, I just walked up to him, and uh, I said, uh, "You know, I'm thinking of doing this thing. I, I've been working on it for a long time." And he just kept in the loop. He would email me every once in a while and say, "You know, how are you doing on that thing?" And I go, oh, "You know, it's really hard." And and uh, so he was our first. Uh, per- we sold a lot of denim to him, and it was it wasn't a smooth ride. You know, on our, on our end, we. We made. Uh, they came to us with a really big order. Uh, I went to the mill and said, "Can you produce this order?" Because, like, I'm on a penalty. Uh, it's Like sometimes when you get when a supplier, or when a brand or a factory takes on a new supplier, they might get them to sign up to a to a penalty, a late penalty, which I was eagerly willing to willing to sign. In hindsight, I know a little bit better now. My negotiate that but we uh we ran into some finishing difficulties and uh and that really pushed um but i think i we came good in the end by offering up some replacements and some free fabric um and it was a, a learning curve but he uh used that in his collection and the jeans looked really great uh and then after and we also sold to nigel caburn Initially, in the beginning, he took some Linen West Selvage. Uh, and we had a little bit of, you know, we sold to Hyatt a couple of times. But our, my best, like, hands down best customer right across the board is, is Joseph from Joe Co. I mean, he just, he is, like, out of all of the people that I have met, he is the one person that is, really really dedicated to british fabric and also i have a we had another customer co- uh, called um um personal effects it's like james at personal effects who is uh, more kind of a modern brand he's not really he's not he doesn't he doesn't have any of his toes in the heritage market he's more let's um, say you know, much more. I was I was going to say it's closer to APC, but then if he hears me, he'll go, "Why did you say that?" Or he might not say that. But um, he's uh, he's a bit more streetwear, but quite kind of very kind of utilitarian, plain, uh, really nice stuff. Um, and he he's been, uh, and then there was there was some other people, but very few and far between. Like I mean, partly. You know, any success the success of any new venture is how many customers you can obtain. And we I have not been able to convince um partly maybe because I tried too hard to to diversify and have more than one product. I think in in hindsight, if I had only offered twelve and a half ounce selvage uh that that's all we do. So yeah, we only do twelve and a half ounce selvage. That's it. Uh in you can have it in organic cotton, you can have it in recycled cotton. You can have it whatever kind of cotton you want, but it's just twelve and a half ounce selvage. And uh then but then I still would have been faced with the challenges of finishing. Like we had one finisher that uh United and also uh United uh overalls um that's right tom 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 put in a very substantial order early on and and that was really great um and you know i the denim that we made for him is for me personally the purest denim i've ever made uh it was finished uh like not the stuff he's putting into his his aprons but the ones that he made his jeans out of that was from our first weave and uh it was finished at a finisher that managed to get what a raw you what is is considered acceptable for raw denim like lots of people put on raw denim they say it will shrink by one to three percent, but it won't it'll shrink by three to five percent uh because it's not the only way that you can shrink the weft is by washing it like really shrink it. you have to wash the denim to set that shrinkage. You can't do it through stretching and and moisturizing and samphorizing because samphorizing really is just a mechanical process that is it's like a mirage almost so if you have a like we we ran some denim through a finisher and then they re-rolled it but they didn't re-roll it not under tension so as they were rolling it they were pulling it and pulling all the shrinkage out of it so like 2,000 meters of denim. like they, And they tested it when it came off the sampleizer. So they cut off a piece and did the test. And they go, no, no, it's fine. It's only shrinking 1% to three percent But when we got it, it was shrinking by 15%. And they're like, and then we had to say to them, did you re-roll that? Did, where did you take the sample for testing from? And they said, well, right off the samphorizer. And I said, Do, test the stuff that you've re-rolled. And they tested that, and they said, "Oh yeah." So they're also
0: new, new to the game.
1: No, no, I mean they're they're a big freaking company, right? (laughs) Like they've been in the business. That's their business. It's finishing, right? But I speak to Weavers all the time here, and they go, "Jesus, the finishers!" It's like they because there are so few of them. They have basically the whole industry over a barrel. You either use this or you got to send your fabric to Europe. And they're like, and you don't want to do that because of Brexit. <laughs> and they're like, right? So yeah. it's uh But this weave that Tom has is that was done by this this finisher, who we tried to get them to do it again, but they hadn't written down the process that they applied to get that result. They actually said that in an email. We haven't written down the process that we were we applied because they could never achieve it again, ever. And we're like, but what did you, like, it it can't, like, could you just get around the table and just maybe talk about what you might have done? And they just couldn't do it. So that denim, which I would love, literally love to have three meters of so that I could make a pair of jeans in a pattern that I made, all right? And I would literally wear them until they were threadbare because that denim is unbelievable. Like, I mean, it's the closest that you're going to get to something coming off of a draper Lund, uh from Cone Mills. I mean, it is, it's it's like near 12 and a half ounces. It's um, just beautiful. And, uh, you know, so we, the issue where we are, but the issues were for us, were finishing that we never could we couldn't, and I I would get sometimes an order, not a paid order. I would I'd say, don't pay me, don't pay me yet. I'm just gonna I'm gonna finish it first and see what what happens, and like you know I, I and be really clear with them that this finishing might not work, and if it doesn't work, then I'll let you know. And we would send it to be finished, and someone would say, well we'll do it this way, and then they would do it that way, and you would like or they would. And then they'd say we, we never would have said that to you, and I'm like, you know, like I, I can't, I I can't believe I'm being gaslit by a by a finisher, a UK finisher. <laughs> I'm like, so it was it was this constant, um, yeah, I mean, just, and then I would phone this these people up and I'd say, look, I can't I can't send that denim to you. I can send it to you, however, the shrinkage is all wrong. Or there's ripple in it. or And ripple is when you don't apply enough moisturizer just before you put it in the samphorizer. And if you get like a, a little, like a crease, say at the beginning of of the roll, that will go right the way through. the, the Right the way through the roll. And it will ripple the fabric like a ripple. So it doesn't lie flat. And it's sometimes off, and so the only way to get rid of ripple is to, you know, wash your denim again. And the more times you finish your denim, the more it, it breaks down the um, the warp yarn. Um, so I, I have I currently have twenty three hundred meters of fabric, which uh, I'm desperate to get rid of, but you know you can't sell it at a loss. You gotta sell it, you know, to break even. But it's, it's all of those things. But those, again, those are the things I've learned over the years. Never hold stock. That's, that's a lesson I've learned. So moving forward, we only, we, I literally will only weave to order. Um, because it's, there's not, there's no benefit in, in doing it the other way because it's so difficult to get British brands to to buy the denim. And, and and that's not because they don't want to. I think it's it's because their price points are built on production done somewhere else.
0: Yeah. There's two questions I have right now. One is, have you learned an enormous amount about running a business throughout all this? And the second is: Are you surprised at why the British industry has declined so sharply, given your experiences?
1: But look, I, I have learned a lot. I've learned that you know you you can have a lot of creativity and passion, and lots of people have those things, and that those are really really good things, and and those are things that should be encouraged in people. But also, what should be encouraged is that you know, running a business is that and running a a manufacturing business is all about margins and and about uh, depreciation of, um, of you know, capital expenditure and all of those things that you have to think about before going in into a business. And also for what I've learned about, you know, I get a lot of emails and calls from people that have a product they want to create another product they want it to be a British product Uh, and but they don't understand anything about the product that they want to purchase Um, and so so they don't really understand anything about fabric like I get people who phone me up and say I got someone that literally phoned me or emailed me the other day to say I really want we're doing a project for a big company and we really want we we no we're doing a project we really wanna do this new product and we wanna build the fabric. You know, we wanna work with you. Now, I over the years you know I'm not I'm not saying that I'm because I'm cynical or jaded, but over the years I've learned when someone uses the sentence we want to work with you Normally means that they want to buy a tiny amount of denim and they want to do an Instagram story or some kind of thing. And wh- and it doesn't matter whether they're a small label or a big label. Uh, but they got in touch, they said, We're launching this new product. We're really popular in these countries, breaking into this market. And uh, what's your minimum order? And I said, 600 meters. And they said, For Sam Fries. They said, 600 meters for Sam Fries. And they said, why, why, why 600 meters? And I said, well, well, I said, well, cause that's just what it is. And they said, but we wanted 15 meters. And I'm, and to me, that's like, so what you're going to make 10 jackets, like, or across the sizes, how many sizes, if you just have small, medium and large, you're going to have three and a half jackets per size. So yeah. that's, that's not, um, so I understand that that's their business model, but when, and and I used to try and accommodate those people. And, and, and I understand today that you just, you can't take things personally. You just can't accommodate them. You've got to, it's all about, uh, you know, your margin and your bottom end. Right. I mean, that you can't, you can't, you either have to be running a business that is, or, you're either it's either a business or you're just or it's just a hobby uh, yeah. and and the two can't go together they don't live with one another. so I've learned that and then you know the industry um, I think that that's you know lots of things there hasn't really been any investment into our industry in about 40 years uh, you know when it comes to clothing manufacturing, there are no large-scale clothing manufacturers here that really can handle volume if, if you get into denim. Denim is, you know, there used to be a, a, a I actually, I was in an event the other day and I met a woman there that used to manage the Levi's uh, sewing factory in Glasgow, um, which went out of business, I think in the nineties, mid nineties. And, uh, you know, since then there's really been no uh, volume manufacturer of denim in the UK. Um, but also, you know, I, I also met years ago these guys that were making dresses for Victoria Beckham and they said, you know, we pay our machinists 15 quid an hour. But they're all old. He said, you know, they're all there's a couple of guys, but mainly they're they're, you know, women nearing retirement or even past the age of retirement. There are no, there's, there were like three people over 25, but under the age of 40 in their sewing factory. And he just said, this made in the UK thing is, they felt was a flash in the pan because the skill set wasn't there anymore and no one was changing the model. So, yes, there is an industry for lots of niche brands for a certain uh you know, a certain demographic, the type of person that can afford a 30 pound t-shirt. All right. But for everyone else, there, there's not a clothing industry for, for the rest of us or for the rest of the people that, that don't, that can't afford a 30 pound t-shirt that can't afford a 280, 350 pound pair of jeans that because, and that doesn't exist anymore. And that's partly because the likes of M&S don't make anything really in the UK. Burberry moved their factory from, from Wales to, you know, they moved their production out of the UK. Uh, and most, and I'm not saying that makes Burberry or M&S bad companies. It's just that to produce in the UK, we would have to build something new because no one can handle the volume. Paul Smith can't bring their genes production back to the UK because there's no way of handling the volume. For instance, in 2019-20, M&S produced 5.5 million pairs of genes. And... There isn't a sewing factory in the UK that can produce five and a half million pairs of jeans in a year.
0: It's a sort of chicken and egg situation, isn't it? Whereby one thing can't happen without the other, but none of them want to be first.
1: Well, I think that none of them want. I don't, th- I don't think it's that. I think it's the actual financial outlay of creating a sewing or CMT operation. In the UK, that makes that is commercially viable. One of the reasons making the Far East is so is so easy is because the labor costs are very low, and you know sewing mills that vertical mills that have uh, sewing factories and laundries attached to them have thousands of employees sewing hundreds of thousands of pairs of jeans a day. Um and unless we, you know, the we get you know in the West it's different, we're transitioning towards a more sustainable uh uh way of producing and purchasing garments. We're not we're being told that we have to consume less. And that's, that's great. That's a good thing. But in, in the developing world, that is not the narrative. They're, they're not slowing down there. And even though brands will do that here, they're unlikely to copy that model in, uh, in the Far East and in developing countries. They're going to, because those populations want to consume. Um, and, buy all of those western goods but when it comes to separating the market out and looking at the market in europe and north america which is and J- japan australia south korea you know those kind of western democracies uh it is the the conversation now is uh you know, people planet profit and in that when we adopt that model, we have to, we have to ask ourselves, you know, do I need 14 pairs of trainers and, uh, you know, 17 pairs of salvage denim, uh, or, you know, you know, 15 t-shirts or, you know, this, do I need all of that? Or do I need to just, um, you know, let up a little bit on that. And, and, but, it is about transitioning their production. You know, does M&S want to, even if they have these two different models, do they want to be making or producing those two different models in two different factories? And that's, and the only way that you can make an argument for that is by building something that the that, that cost price to M&S is not that far off of what they're paying there to what they're paying here. But the only way to do that is to build something that just doesn't exist
0: here. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but at this point in the pod, you're probably wondering, where are the ads? I miss the ads. And you're right, there are no ads. I hate ads. If you'd like to buy me a coffee, though, you can go to buymeacoffee.com enter GOMology, And it's easy. And uh, yeah, let's continue on. Now, I notice um, throughout what you've been doing, you have had a focus on eco, green, sustainability. Is that down to personal conviction or are you trying to sort of uh, reverse the the denim trend? Because denim and jeans does have a terrible reputation environmentally. Um,
1: I think originally it was... I've become more um, of an advocate of that over time. Partly originally, I think, I'll be completely transparent here. I think that there was an aspect of it was about, you know, the environment. But there was also, it was also about the fact that no one else was doing that. And I knew that with a new product, you needed to stand out from the crowd. Um, so that's and then and then soon after that, I read some things about you know pesticides and how a lot a lot of cotton farmers around the world are poisoned by their own crops and um and and then about labor started to become a thing for me that you know that that there was a lot of slave labor and a lot of uh, trafficking into uh labor into those into those industries um and so more and more it became about that and then it and then over time it's just become uh a thing of like why wouldn't you i remember reading a some of a an article from a book by this environmental architect called william mcdonough who developed this model called cradle to cradle and he had he had said that he had talked about how some environmentalists go they try to convince people that they want to do something them to do something differently, to be more environmentally conscious they they approach them as with a closed fist uh, and that then person then that business or organization sees them as the enemy and becomes quite defensive. But he said, you know, if you go with an open hand and try and explain to them that if they do things differently, that it's actually be more cost effective for them. Um, and he had talked about he had gotten uh, a contract to to, to redo some uh, a, a, a company's um, headquarters, the, the 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 office, the entrance kind of the uh, entrance area. And he said, well, I'll take care of everything. And, and they, they said, fine. So he stripped out the carpet and he found that the carpet was, I think it was in Switzerland, the carpet was too toxic for them to landfill in Switzerland. So they had to send it somewhere else. And he thought, why would a company make something that was so toxic? It couldn't be landfilled in its own country. So he went to the company and he, he explained to them and they looked at all of the chemicals that went into this product and uh, they say saw that they could take some stuff out and replace it with other things. And, and at the end of it, what would happen is that this company would then be able to landfill this or they would be able to dispose of this carpet in their own country. But also it was cheaper. It would be cheaper for them to produce and by doing that they said yeah okay we'll change all the processes and so they changed all the processes and in, in turn that company became uh, environmentally more environmentally friendly and then eventually went on to become very environmentally friendly so by reading his book and and hearing about that and about you know taking something and being able to re- recycle it back to its component part to be able to be used again seemed and as it also that it could be financially responsible as well to a company to to do that to actually pursue that model i then got into my head thinking well why wouldn't you why would you make something that is harmful when you can just change the chemistry so that it's not that and so where i am now like you know in moving forward pardon me with this new project is that our our goal is to be environmentally circular. Uh 100% environmentally circular to to so that we don't that no part of what we do causes harm to anything. Uh that we like you know we might have a little bit of trouble with the shipping of of a product but you know to 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 be you know where we want to be at year one, and where we want to be at year five is that at year five we want to be net zero at, you know, all of these things, and and actively working towards that goal, that sustain and and being able to be sustainable in that goal, like that we can sustain that goal, get to that point, and then that is just how we how we operate. Um, we believe is is you know, the best way for a company to be. Um, and, and you know, and, and that conversation was a lot harder 10 years. I used to phone people up and go, can you use organic dye? And these guys would go, what is organic? And I go, I, you don't know what it is at all, or... Or sometimes I phone up and I say, Can you use organic cotton? They say people would say all cotton is organic. And I'm like, you still get people like that sometimes. They go, but you know, I'd like to point out, Chris, that all cotton is organic. <laughs> and, and you're like, but for the most part, the conversation is actually a lot easier these days. But yeah, like I think it's look, I mean, you know, indigo is I've been working with this guy who's kind of partnered on this bio indigo project and that's coming along. Like, I mean, it's an actual thing. Like, I don't know, like it it might happen. We might prove that it's it's, uh, possible in six months time or it might take 60 years. I don't know, but I've also got my toe in another project around indigo and about making, and there's a great company in um, America called Stony Creek, who are producing um, 20% pre-reduced natural indigo. Now, the industry standard, I think, for dye star gots is uh, 40%, but you know they just got to get another 20%, and then they've got a industry comparable product that is completely natural and um and 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 viable you know they can they think that they can they can get within a short distance on price compared to chemical indigo um and once that milestone is reached the chemical indigo companies may you may see them transitioning out of a petrochemical based uh, indigo chemical dye into something that's a little bit more natural Uh, because I guarantee you the industry, the mills will just go, they'll go for the ecologically sound one rather than the chemical one because the consumer will just say, yeah, I'm I'm sorry, I don't want that anymore. Um, The consumer, it's great and amazing that the consumer is really I've always said the consumer consumers are like the most powerful people in the world. All right. Like, I mean, if it's like when Nike was had to change the their manufacturing practices because people were like, you know what, we're not gonna buy your trainers anymore. And they were like, right, we have to do something about this. And they were really proactive about that. I mean, amazingly proactive. So It's now people are saying, and the industry, the denim industry, really know that they have to change, because if they don't, then they will be, if they don't all change, they'll be usurped by the ones that do. Like Cone has just, uh, you know, gone to a point where there are almost zero liquid discharge from any of their plants, so i mean like a, it really is the future um, and so yeah i mean like i'm i became a vegan like like i i don't i don't know whether that has anything to do with it i mean i'm i mean being a vegan literally i was a chef being a vegan literally sucks i mean it is it is terrible I, I might even, I might die of angina. I eat, I eat, there's so much salt in that processed vegan food, you know. But I think the environment is really important. I'm really excited that more British uh, manufacturers are becoming uh, more vocal about it. Um, uh, but what, you know, again, it, it's all, a lot of time it's all about money. And if you don't have the money to invest into to put into, and that's where government comes in, in into play. That government needs to be more proactive with investment and state aid into um, businesses that want to become more sustainable because they just can't do it on their own. Hmm. So I got a little bit of political there, but
0: you know, not really. That's, that's okay. That's okay. Um, so when hewitt's denim mark ii is launched it will be with natural indigo uk sourced fibers and british finishing
1: yeah like i mean like we are you know watch the space like i mean it's a big event it's 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 a big 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 undertaking we are at the we're we're kind of midway uh we'll know i'll know more in uh Probably the next four or five months or so, we'll we'll have a we'll know whether it's um gonna fly, a hundred percent. And but what it is is it's about changing the way that we produce denim in the world. Uh, we're just gonna be we're gonna be uh we're gonna become one of the denim players in the world, like one of one of those. It's going to be a new mill with a new uh, kind of direction and a new model of how we produce clothes in the UK
0: and how we produce fabric in the UK. Love the ambition. In closing, Chris, is there anything you'd like to mention, anything we've forgotten to talk about?
1: No, I mean, just, uh, you know, it's great to be... uh, I always say, you know, I'm very excited when people ask me this. Do, I don't really, don't, I'm not, it's like I get asked all the time. I don't really get asked that much, but it is great to be, um, I guess, in a sense, out of the shadows and into the light a little bit. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm just, you know, I love the fact that, uh, Nick, that you have this, uh, you know, this amazing podcast and uh, that I will now listen to attentively all the time and you know you're and uh it's uh it's just great that there's just there's really this interest in you know british manufacturing and british products and and denim and you know because when i first started out there was i mean it
0: was like a ghost town and you so... had to make your own didn't you <laughs> that's true that's true <laughs> okay chris thanks so much for joining me today and uh Bye-bye for now. All right. Thanks, Nick. And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee, which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch... Suggest a guest, just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So until next week, bye bye.